1: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.
0: This is Simon Rose, and now it is time for The Bigger Picture, where I'm talking to political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Gratcho Tendency blog.
1: Um, so where do we begin, Mike? Well, we have to begin with, less trust, I think, Simon, <laughs> the utterly remarkable collapse in prime ministerial authority probably the most remarkable route of prime ministerial authority certainly in modern times we can chart the history of leaders of this country in the um in the post war period and there are very few that obviously there there are leaders who have enjoyed long periods in office of great almost presidential style authority Thinking Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair. Um, there are those who have to contend with trickier cabinets and better at party management. But the, the rule of thumb is that if you're going to survive in Britain's parliamentary system between elections, no matter what the size of your majority is, the relationship with your party, with that limited pool of colleagues who can form your government and ultimately are your, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, the most important constituency. And the only person who can really remove you as party leader, uh, sooner or later, the people who most prime ministers they don't leave office because they lose an election. They lo- they leave office because their party usually gets rid of them. Think about Thatcher and Blair. In the end, they didn't lose elections. It wasn't the public that got them out. It was the Labour Party and it was the Conservative Party, famously in Thatcher's case. And, it, and it's it's this true for David Cameron for. Um, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and now it looks like Liz Truss as well. And you could be forgiven for wondering how long has Truss been in charge now? Well, she's been in charge now for 40 days. And if we take off the 10 days who of for the, for the, national mourning for the Queen's death, which I have to say, I think the Prime Minister actually comported herself in that very high pressure, difficult circumstance as well, it's hard to think of a worse start to a government and people may be sitting there thinking there may be some trust fans that they're thinking well surely surely this is an over exaggeration well let's let's just look at a few a few facts here as well so Liz Truss was elected as conservative party leader on a very very slim mandate. she won twenty thousand more votes for a very narrow selection of party members than her nearest rival rishi sunak she was elected with less than a fifth of tory mps backing her so you'd think that an approach like this, a leader would recognise that the space for acting on the stage is limited. Yes, the government has a majority of, uh, of 80 at the last election, a working majority of 71 in the Commons, but this is, not, this is not historically the biggest of majorities that people have enjoyed. This is probably comparable with New Labour in its third term, sort of 60-something majority, and there's large amounts of U-turns there. Truss has spent a good chunk of time, and indeed this is not unique, Uh, rubbishing the actions of her predecessors, but to a different extent here. The last time a prime minister in the truth may embarked on such an ideological route, uh, obviously a different direction, it was met with disaster. Truss is a committed libertarian. She's moved in that direction. She has pursued policies in office that have um, sought to embrace that, particularly, most notably, the high level of tax cuts that she's chosen to prioritise at a time when we are moving out of the lowest period of uh, borrowing costs that we've ever seen in lowest interest rates in 300 years. So there's, this, there's the big picture judgment of that. There's also the lack of economic orthodoxy to back up her argument. Very few economists believe that the trickle-down approach of freeing up more wealth at the top of society, giving more money back to the, best, uh, to the highest earners and those who are better off actually has any benefit beyond giving the people who are already the richest more money in their pockets as well. And this, this comes off the back of the fact that if we look at income disparity over the last uh, 12 years, particularly under quantitative easing, last 15 years, that's actually only the income gaps only widened because QE and printing money has effectively only benefited mainly the richest people in society as well. So there are trusts. Firstly, failed to read the political mood. She's then failed to read the economic and I would say fiscal outlook. Well, too, and then there is this: the the policies that she's pursuing, and she's not cutting taxes for those people who are uh, most in need. She she was mulling over a, a for example, a fifteen percent cut in fifteen percent to VAT, which again may have pushed prices further up, as you saw with Rishi Sunak. I I don't know if that tax cut would have had an inflationary effect. I'm sure it would have, in my very limited understanding of economics. She prioritised instead to make a pick a fight over the largely totemic issue of the 45p tax rate, alongside uh, keeping corporation tax low, alongside deferring, yes, bringing forward a 1p cut in the basic rate of tax. So there's no political cover here. She has not sought to bring people along with her. And then we've seen time and again the fact that the the money markets have no confidence in her now. Markets are tricky things. They are mercurial things. I wouldn't claim to be a great market analyst or to understand them. But one of the things the Chancellor has to do is, and particularly the Prime Minister as well, is they have to have always have one eye on what's happening on the world stage. And they fail to that. But at the same time, they are pursuing policies that necessitate a huge amount of borrowing that there is no evidence that it's going to deliver the means to pay back the money they are taking out to do this. This they gave away roughly two percent of national income at the last budget, which is a huge amount of money for the UK. We're we're still in the top ten biggest economies in the world, fifth or sixth biggest, I forget which now. And there is a reason that tax cuts have not been prioritized on this scale because they do not work. But if we look at the fact that this came without Also, without any sort of independent oversight, without any attempt to build confidence, this is time and again the failing across trusts board. It's an arrogance at the fact that they believe they are doing the right thing, but don't want to have people mark their homework for it. And that lack of reassurance has probably crystallized itself in what's happened in the cost of government borrowing going up. We've seen a huge jump in the UK guilt markets, the rates at which we borrow have has definitely spiked since the mini budget and that in turn has fed through like a sort of toxic drip 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 into one of the core pieces of the tory coalition the thing that has arguably been at the center of the tory coalition since the 1980s and trust uh, so is supposed to die margaret thatcher which is the idea that conservative voters under a conservative government you can own your own home now you could argue to toss about whether or not the the Conservatives have pursued policies in government to necessitate that. I firmly believe they haven't. But what we have seen now are is a trebling of sometimes of mortgage rates, the highest rates for fifteen years. And don't forget that there is a landscape for people, particularly of my generation and certainly younger, who have gotten used to these low costs. This is the one redeeming feature we were told time and again of the property market that oh yeah, don't worry, you may you may be having to borrow. Eight times your income now, as opposed to four times or twice your income in the 90s to get a mortgage. But the borrowing costs are low. You may be borrowing a lot of money, but you, are, you can you can spread the repayments. You can borrow a confidence that has now gone. People don't have the savings to benefit from this as well. Consumer debt has risen since the pandemic. So but the cost of borrowing is rising. And trust has put this like a dagger into the heart of the Tory coalition, effectively spiking the homeowning dream for so many people. And it is no wonder that in the face of all of this, with a huge surge in the polls for the Labour Party, a huge boost, I mean, you see this, the fact that people haven't suddenly woken up and been inspired by Keir Starmer. It's their old adage that governments lose elections rather than oppositions winning them. They've woken up and realised that this government doesn't know what it's doing. And even the better off people in society, who are by and large the ones who do tend to vote. Uh, have realised that the government is essentially shafting a key part of their dreams, and even that dream of being able to get a, a home is now seemingly out of their reach. And it's hard to underestimate, to understate, or to even put bluntly just how much of an existential threat this represents to the Conservative Party at this point in time, because I've said it before on this podcast, I'll say it again, they have only succeeded by being an ideological party once for a very limited period of time in their history most of the time they have survived by being a pragmatic move with the times adaptation party of more of a cultural institution than arguably a political one trust has sought to junk that and in many ways it's you know they knew exactly what they were voting for but It's the fault of the members. It's the fault of the MPs. They're getting exactly what they wanted. And we were warned about all these consequences. So in many ways, it's hard to feel sorry for the MPs that are now realising and waking up and smelling the coffee about how bad things are for them. But also, we have to look at what's going to happen to the country as well. And if I'm honest, I mean, we are recording this at a time of great uncertainty, probably one of those tipping points of uncertainty which we have become all too used to since 2008, where the Bank of England has is due to is maybe winding up a, a guilt buying program. They've been buying index linked bonds for the first time ever, I believe. And without some sort of political intervention from the Treasury, yet another market intervention, one of the UK's main borrowing costs here could be tanking on Monday. And that it's hard to understate just the impact that would have on this country. It's a deeply worrying time. And I appreciate, obviously, that things may have been fine. But at this point in time, on, on this date, at this moment, it feels like a real moment of uncertainty. And it could be another Black Wednesday, perhaps. Certainly for the government's economic reputation, it has the similar repercussions, I would argue.
0: Mike, time, time for you, perhaps, just to pause for, for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. So, Mike, where do we go now?
1: I think we have to look at the sort of components of what's going on behind the scenes. And again, Simon, I defer to you because I know you you have a great of expertise in this area as well. In that we have to look at the relationship that exists, probably that key relationship at the moment behind the scenes between, yes, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, but also the government and the Office of Budget Responsibility, and crucially, the Bank of England. Because one of the things that we've become used to, I would argue, since the financial crisis, and this is where I sort of date my kind of, you know, this is when I became involved in politics and became aware of this, is that we have become used to monetary policy doing all the heavy lifting, you know the first the first thing that happened, you know the first thing we kind of were mostly aware of, I'd argue, with the financial crisis in 08 was the Bank of England taking rates down to that 0.25 percent and then staying there for as long as they did. I mean, that essentially created this climate as part of the wider context, way you know, and as, as banks around the world were doing with this huge amount of um, uh, quantitative easing that was going on, this printing of money, you know, 800 billion pounds in this country alone almost a trillion, almost a trillion pounds of quantitative easing, but keeping rates low for that length of time, creating this environment where people have, after after 10 years, after 10, 12, 14 years it's been, people became used to that. And I think governments did as well. And so essentially we can talk about the bank being independent from the treasury, but essentially they function as two arms of it as well. And a lot of this has been outsourced to A lot of the responses to the big issues that we've faced, whether it's Brexit, COVID, the financial crisis, in the backdrop and the continued has been outsourced to the Bank of England as well, and maintaining liquidity. And the government, I think, has been successive governments, the Conservative governments especially, have been quite content to do that whilst pursuing their own pet projects, whether it was the 30 billion worth of spending cuts that George Osborne did, whether it was leaving the European union, whether it was whatever it was that Boris Johnson was, was doing in office as well, leveling up, um, trying to get a deal through. And during this time we had arguably, I would say for the benefit of this, a politically astute governor of the Bank of England, in the form of Mark Carney, uh, a respected uh economist and central banker but also somebody who i think had very astute political antenna and wasn't going to pull in different directions to the government he has been replaced now by the technocrat that is andrew bailey somebody who has come from the more technical side of the uh financial services regulation i won't bore people but suffice say he comes from the, the the banking regulator the um it, it, that covers, you know, one of the main assets, you could, but more a technocrat, I would say, than a, a politician in that regard. And the issue is, is that Bailey takes a very different approach to monetary policy, that he looks at what he has to do. He looks at, you know, he's very much a by the book man. And when he was running the PRA, when he was running the financial services uh, authority, this is needed because banking regulation is, you know, should, should be in this country, should be by the book. It's highly technical I say this as I work for a, a big insurer myself. Now, this is you know, this, this regulation is rightly dry. Rightly needs men like Bailey. When you're the governor of the Bank of England, you've got you have regular conversations with the Chancellor, and this is part of the fact that part of the fact that we've benefited, I think, from having that relationship, that key relationship between HM Treasury, the Treasury, and and Direct Middle Street, has been stable with Carney being there because he, you know, Carney was there through George Osborne. You know <laughs> Philip Hammond. You know quite, quite. You know Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak. Quite a few of them. You know he had he had he had a good few chancellors, and largely speaking, you know that part. But we've, the partnership has changed up now. And yes, he's he's he's, he's had to deal with. Um, I think in the last year or so, Rishi Sunak, Nadim Sahari, now Kwasi Kwate, and there were th- three men there with three very different ideas about monetary and fiscal policy as well so you've had some sort of big statism response you've had um zahawi trying to calm things down a little bit um because don't forget these ructions were going on over the summer as well as inflation is pushing through and that's the other thing that's changed you know we have a whole generation of policymakers whether it's monetary fiscal political who aren't used to dealing with inflation mm-hmm. at this rate certainly it's never been higher in my lifetime and i'm you know i'm in my mid-30s now so i'm not i'm not yeah, I'm just about prepared to say I'm still young, but I'm still saying that uh, Simon's not disagreeing with me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. The um, but we've never seen this kind of early inflection. Now, obviously, uh, people of a certain age will remember this, but the chances there there being people in positions of influence, certainly p- politicians who know how to deal with this, is 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 next to nothing. And we have now have a government that's drawn the wrong lessons from history. And the crucial thing, this is why I keep coming back to Andrew Bailey, is that. You've got the government going off and doing this incredible disposal of national income through tax cuts and borrowing and borrowing stuff's going up. Now, if Mark Carney had been there, he would have done what Mark Carney did, I would argue, and he would have lent into it. He would have looked at what the bank needed to do to reassure the markets as it has done for the last few years. And again, you could argue about the outcomes of monetary policy, Um there are very few the bank has a still It can't pull. Interest rates can go up or down to tackle inflation. At the moment, they're, they're raising them. They're 2.75%. They've done quite conservative rate rises, and they can print money effectively as part of that. But, but the bank has one target, which is to deal with inflation. It doesn't look at things like unemployment. We've got a very tight labor market at the moment. For example, The bank, I was talking to somebody who was actually astonished the bank doesn't have a remit to deal with unemployment. And I would argue the bank does need to have two changes to its remit, it needs to have a remit to reach net zero by 2050 and it needs to have a remit to allow the labour market um, rate to be sufficient to allow it to flex in times like this because at the moment we have the lowest unemployment since 1974 there's no slack in the labour market at the time of high inflation as well and that's another issue and our, our, our growth is falling as a result I mean, we may, be we are teetering on the edge of recession the third one again I think we've had since 2008 which is Bog, mind-boggling Now it's almost becoming the norm to deal with economic friction. But to bring it back to Bailey and, and Kwasi Quateng, Andrew Bailey is not Carney. he's not leaning into the government's policy. And that is, this isn't to say it's the government's job to prop up the Bank of England, it's to say the government has gotten used to the Bank of England doing the heavy lifting, and Bailey isn't doing that. And we have a, a, equally two a Prime Minister of the Chancellor, Quateng and Truss, who are committed small-state Conservatives, who are prepared to borrow for the wrong reasons not prepared to have their homework marked and uh, when someone insisted you know I think it was someone talked to Jacob Rees-Mogg about why the bond markets were so frightened if you look at the graphs that when the the mini budget happened and yes yes UK borrowing rates have been rising but the guilt rates really jumped when they realized just how big Kuateng was going to go and there wasn't a plan to tackle it yeah there is apparently a plan coming Kuateng's looking to get debt as a share of GDP falling over five years. So that's going to be 2027, 2028 here, people. So we're talking nearly 2030 here. That's a whole general election and a half away now. Without this, long-term scenario suggests that UK um, uh, debt could hit 100% of GDP. Soon it could be 150% by the middle of the decade. We are on an unsustainable path of borrowing here. And all we're hearing from the government time and again is we have the lowest debt that you said yes now but you're borrowing huge amounts to fund these tax cuts and you haven't got the growth guaranteed to pay that back and even if that does happen high inflation means you can't just grow the economy to inflate away debt you have to either i'm going to say it again raise taxes cut spending the government's not going to raise taxes which leads you to cut spending which is going to again take money out of the economy You know, the biggest one of the biggest employers in our country is the NHS, for example, we spend nearly a third. We will be spending about a third of our government spending on health care. In fact, people, some people argue you should spend more of health spending on GDP of health because health the workforce, it drives, you know, there's a whole complicating things there as well. But the real reason that there's a, that, that things are in trouble here is the government has not recognized that they are dealing with a very different central banker here who is very much going to stick to his brief and is not going to bail them out when the going gets tough and that has profound political economic and social consequences going forward unless the government it's the government that has to change course here not the bank because for the first time this crisis is almost wholly of a political making It is not can't be blamed on the recession it can't be blamed on covid it's the government that's looking at doing this it's not read the room and it's it's honestly astonishing. Simon. It's
0: honestly staggering. Okay. okay, you've got another sort of set of topics you want to talk about. So let's let's move on to them as our um, <laughs> last thing
1: to chat about
0: um, today. Well, yeah, let, let's, well, let's Why talk... do I get the feeling there's going to be no optimism in this either? But um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's, let's find out. So oh, yeah. go ahead, Mike. Please. Well, you keep you keep me around for my you keep me around for my sunny optimism. So okay, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, uh, try, let's try and find okay. Let's try and find something positive. Okay, so. Let's say something positive here. The go- what the government has done right and they rightly talk about this because I mean, they haven't managed to talk about it properly, but the huge energy market intervention has kicked in now. So we're recording this about halfway into October. We are seeing now people are being protected by the biggest price intervention in since 19 since the 1970s. Now that's a good thing because the government has capped the unit kilowatt cost of energy. It's effectively put a big suture to the wound, 150 billion pounds. Again, a huge intervention, and to give full credit to Trust and Kwatteng, this this is this is their this is their big win. This is their big policy win. I mean, they've managed to utterly drown it out and not get any credit for it. But you know, I'm I'm a big enough man to admit they should get credit for this. And I think it will save people a lot of money. Um, there is going to be a huge amount of government intervention going to this on top of the the money that people are getting in their in their in their energy bills as well. And it will undoubtedly save people, particularly in the poorest households, a lot of money. So again, optimism, full credit there. So but here's the thing that's confusing. This isn't so much depressing as confusing. That big intervention has happened now. But ultimately, the other thing you need to do is to kind of make people aware of what's going on. Now, people are aware that energy bills are rising. The government managed to miscommunicate around its energy price um, cap. People, many people were convinced that That their bills have been capped at two and a half thousand pounds. Now, the main reason for that, I would say, is that that figure probably lines that would say the weight was paid under furlough, where people got their income paid to them. Whereas actually, that's not the case. The per the per price hour has been capped, which means that you could your bills could still be higher than that, but effectively you're you're not going to be paying a higher unit rate range. Your use your usage per unit of energy is capped, not your overall bill. So remember that. Take it away and buy it. I'm sure our listeners are. Sound buddy people, as share radio listeners are, they'll remember that. Here's the thing though government spends 150 billion on this and it won't spend 15 million pounds. The Prime Minister nicked an idea for an energy usage awareness campaign. And the reason this is important is that there's two components. Yes, personal usage of energy is going to have an impact on bills, it will help people keep things down. It might, be, for example, whether you could say lower the temperature on your boiler at which your water's boiled it might be for example unplugging things it might be for example having the heating on less as well Mm. and these may sound like obvious things as well but you know people lead busy lives and it may it just helps i think to spell it out and it gives the government cover it shows a kind of you know well it's the the flip side flip
0: side of what they're doing so why (laughs) do you think she was so against it
1: and this is the thing the prime minister said. I, there was a minister, the minister, the minister of climate, um, who sits in the cabinet. Turned around, and said, "I think it was Graham Stewart MP." said, "It's a nanny state." Well, I'm sorry, you're a nanny state if you're spending 150 billion pounds um, capping energy costs. That's 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 ultimate nanny state. If you're a critic of that, yeah. that's big statism at its hugest. Spending £50 pounds on an energy awareness campaign is a minimum you could do. I mean. You know, you could say, you know, arguably that's, if you're a libertarian, that's, that's the smarter, you know, which is, which is the smaller, which is the the less amount of state intervention printing. Especially if it works. Well, if, 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 and also it just gives you cover. You can say, well, actually, do you know what? As, as, as a government, we've, we've put a leaflet through everyone's door this week that gives them five energy saving tips. Now, yes, we recognize that's not going to, you know, there are bigger things to do with market intervention, but it's effectively not finishing the job. And, this is another example of how the prime minister's view of the world. And this, this came from this, this, this didn't come from any bleeding heart socialist. This, this came out of Jacob Rees-Mogg's department, you know, the right-hand the member for the eighteenth century, the man who, would I assume, and I hear minister for business, I imagine him with a stovepipe hat next to Isambard Kingdom Brunel, or in some Dickensian factory, you know, watching children making matches. This is, you know, this is a man who isn't renowned for presenting himself as the most modern, forward-thinking minister.
0: No and no, if you once talk about nanny state in Parliament, and somebody said, "Well, you would know." Exactly. <laughs> well, this, is, <laughs> well, this, so
1: again, this is this is honestly i'm i'm astonished they haven't done this but then again look if people want to go on and find energy saving tips you can google it i would suggest it's worth doing yeah um there are i'd recently drafted scooted my own house for about 35 pounds it's it's actually you could do some very low very low cost but highly effective ways of keeping things there and also there are schemes out there for insulation there are schemes out there for say boiler grants as well um, if you're worried about energy usage this winter and crucially there are there is support out there for those on the low incomes. I, i'm not going to pretend it's going to be an easy winter particularly for those people on low incomes as well but it, just encourage people to, to be proactive and, and to see to see what's out there and to reach out for help if you need it and that's the important thing you know, look after yourselves yeah, you know, we're we're going we're going into you know we're going into a very uncertain and, and tricky time. So, to our listeners, take care of yourselves. Look at what you can do to keep warm. Check up on people around you, and remember that the right there is support out there to help. It may just be the government, as is the government's want, isn't doing a very good job of explaining itself. But I suspect that more help will need to be done before this winter is out. Mike. Thank you very much indeed.
0: That's Mike Indian, political commentator, obviously author of The Groucho Tendency blog, and I hope Mike will be back with me in a fortnight's time.
1: The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines
0: of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.